Our gracious God, we do want to know you. But with knowing you uh, comes danger because we can't know you and not be changed, not be confronted. And so we ask that you would gently confront us, that you would open our eyes and ears to see and hear you, and that we would realize that in surrender comes sweet peace and comfort. May we see that even as we open up your word this morning, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, uh, hopefully everybody grabbed a handout. Uh, They're on the side table. We, uh, like I've said before, uh, when Pastor Isaac's not here, I'm uh, doing a series based on Paul David Tripp's book, uh, Do You Believe? Uh, it's a fun, fun book just talking about, okay, how do these rich doctrines that we confess and believe affect our life day to day? And, and so that's what we're doing. And the goal is, is to look at that. And, and, and so far we've talked about how our belief that uh, Scripture is God's perfect and infallible word, how that should affect our lives. And so we saw that it should renew our minds the way we think, help us see the world as God sees the world, but it should also guide our steps. And I, I argued last week that ultimately God's word protects us from what? ourselves right that that we have, there's a way that seems right but it is not the way of life and it's God's word that comes in and and protects us from what we think is right and tells us what actually is uh, today we're going to turn and we're going to look at or start looking at the doctrine of God which can sound a bit broad isn't all of our doctrine about God uh, well yes sure it is. But we do want to look at a few things about him uh, in particular. Today we want to talk about his existence, the fact that he is. And, uh, and what that means for us. Uh, in the future, I want to do a couple other lessons where we look at things like his holiness, his sovereignty... His omnipotence and see how those should affect our lives every day. But today we just want to look at the fact that he exists and what does that fact mean for us. And my hope is is to show you that believing that God is, believing that God is, should comfort you, strengthen you, and lead you to live a life of surrender and submission to him. The fact that he is should comfort and strengthen you and lead you to live a life of surrender and submission to him. Now it's often assumed that there are two possible responses for the claim of God's existence. To either deny his existence or to affirm his existence. I think we get that to some degree and to a certain extent that's true. But I would argue that if you press a little deeper we'll see that those two responses can be broken into different types. And so I want to look at four possible responses to God's existence. And the first is what I would call anti-faith. Anyone want to guess what I mean by that? Yeah, yeah, we're talking about an atheist. And an atheist 
isn't someone who simply doesn't believe in God's existence, but someone who denies God's existence. An atheist, in this sense, is a naturalist or a materialist. They don't believe in the soul. They don't believe in anything outside of physical nature. Uh, You would find uh, people who affirm this, people like Christopher Hitchens, at least he used to. He is no longer an atheist. He is a theist now. Uh, Huh? He sure is. Yes. He has met his maker face to face. Uh, But Richard Dawkins... Uh, and and people like that, uh, they will not entertain even the possibility of the existence of God. It's really interesting. So Richard Dawkins uh, was interviewed by Ben Stein, of all people, about the origins of man, and Dawkins was willing to concede the possibility of aliens uh, seeding our planet, but not God. So, so he's open to uh, other possibilities than spontaneous generation as long as it does not include God. So what happens when you affirm that God does not exist? What do you have to do? You've got to be blind to nature. Okay, you've got to be blind to nature. How do you get there? How do you get where? To blindness. Is it that they're born blind? Okay. Spiritually, they are. They're dead. Okay. They're trespasses and sin. So unless God awakens them, okay. I, 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 I think that's true to a great extent. But we don't want to deny that the scripture says these things are plain to all. That there is an awareness. And so part of that blindness is actually self-inflicted. When you say there is no God, you have to begin to defend that position. You have to begin to justify that position. And so those who are anti-faith will spend time and energy justifying and defending their position. They will be opposed and antagonistic toward those who do believe in God because they have a vested interest in defending a world without God. So that's anti-faith. Yeah, Rachel. Oh, absolutely. Right. And I think they can be deceived uh, from outside, but also inside. That there's a, a, a desire to be deceived. And we're going to come back to why. Okay. Oh, absolutely. I guess I kind of felt that way as an unbeliever. Sure. Uh, so I think there's there's two sides of that. Uh, a as as the enemy tries to tempt us, tries to convince us of lies. The, there's an aspect to which he finds a willing subject. Uh, there are times where we want to be convinced of lies. We all know this as teenagers. I can go talk to my parents and grandparents who I know will tell me one thing that I don't want to hear, or I can go to my friends who will tell me one thing that I do want to hear. Where do I go? 
I go to the ones who are going to tell me what I want to believe. There's, it's not that we think our friends are the wisest people in the world. But they're telling us what we want to believe. And so we're not fighting their, their narrative. We're actually embracing it. And so it's not simply that people who believe lies have simply been deceived, though they sought the truth. As, as, as the scriptures tell us, no one seeks for God, no, not one. So there's, it's, I would say it's both and. It's, it's, and we, we know what that's like when we're seeking out people who will tell us what we want to hear. And, and we'll come back to a minute on why we might want to hear that. Uh, I, I do want to put three other um, responses on, on, the t- on the table. One would be, um, uh, so we have anti-faith, and then there's fuzzy faith. <laughs> we might call them agnostics. It, they might say that... They, they believe in some higher power, or at least they're open to some higher power, but that whatever that higher power is, he can't be known. Uh, there's no way to know him or, or what he expects. Occasionally, they will say that they're probably sure that he would affirm this or that, and yet without surprise, it's always something that that person would say or affirm. So what is lacking, always lacking in that kind of fuzzy faith? What do you never have? Accountability. Accountability. God can't be known, so he can't expect us to know or be held accountable to anything like that. Absolutely. What else? What else can you not have with that sort of fuzzy faith? can't be angry or they don't believe in a God that can be angry? No, angered. Okay, okay. They're not angered. Okay. Okay. Can you have any kind of correction from this view? Don't do this, but do this instead. Sorry? Could it just be arbitrary? It would be arbitrary. Not Right, you can't do that consistently. Okay. Right, you can't have a standard. Good. Can you have worship? Yourself. <laughs> but you can't worship a God you don't know. So you can't have a, a, a church or a worship service based around that sort of fuzzy faith. And then there are those who have a very clear idea who God is, uh, where he has spoken, what he requires. We'll call this clear faith uh, as opposed to fuzzy faith. What this person believes is obvious. Anyone who takes the time to talk 
talk to them or watch them can see what what they believe, what matters. Someone with queer faith reads, goes to church, defends what they believe, and seems to obey what is taught. Their their life is arranged around this faith. The last category, so we have anti-faith, fuzzy faith, clear faith. The last one I'll call inconsistent faith. This is the person who at times lives as if what he or she believes about God isn't true. Lives as if God wasn't there, as if God didn't exist. So this person might sometimes lie or cheat or be impatient or uncharitable. A person might disobey his or her parents or or miss worship or, or abuse the Lord's day. This person might have angry outbursts or lust or covet. Might seek his or her own way, might seek his or her own glory. We might call this practical atheism. While there's a clarity of doctrine, life is lived sometimes as if what that person believes weren't true. God didn't exist. God wasn't there. Not a a denial in doctrine, but in practice. Now, is that an issue of the head or of the heart? This is an issue of the heart. There's a disconnect between what this person believes and how this person lives. So, let's take a quick survey. Which kind of faith do you have? Which of these four describes you? Matt was honest. Everybody else just stared at me. Clear faith. Okay. Never inconsistent. Sean? What? I think in reality, we would all like to be clear, and to certain ex- extents, that's true. Somebody talks to us, we live our lives around this. But we would also have to admit there's an inconsistency there. Charlie? I think if you've ever repented, you fall naturally into the last category. Mm-hmm. Like you just said, though, the last inconsistent faith seems to be the other side of the coin. The two are related. The two are related. Right. But to be self-deceived to say, I only have clear faith, I never stumble. Yeah, and... and and these might be my labels, they're not my categories, and uh, stole them from, from Tripp in his book. And I think he's, what he's trying to press is, at, even at the clearest point, there are times where we live as if it wasn't true. And what he's really pressing, as if God wasn't there. We will do things that we would never do if Jesus was in the room to, you know, bodily. How many of us would lose our anger if Jesus was sitting at the table with the three of us or, you know, something like that? No. But we think that God doesn't see, God isn't there, and that we will let ourselves do things. And there's that inconsistency. We want to spend a few minutes trying to account for why our response to God's existence 
is so varied and so messy. On the one hand, there is nothing more natural than believing God exists. Why would I say that? Why would I say, on the one hand, there is nothing more natural than believing in God's existence? Because of nature. Good. Sarah? I mean, I'm sure most of us have taught our kids that God exists from a young age. I mean, kids are normal, obviously. But it's not like a a stretch for them to believe that. They're not like, really? It's like, it's obvious. Look around. Someone created this, you know? And it's like, it's plain. Okay. So... We've gotten at a few things there. I think, one, one second. That things exist, that, that creation exists, I think, Sarah, you're saying, begs for something to make it. That, that, that's not a stretch. Good. Uh, my mom said uh, nature, and I, I'm assuming you mean things like Psalm 19, that the, the, the heavens declare God's glory. Or, you know, they just... Creation surrounding. Mm-hmm. It's beauty, it's majesty, it's complexity, and it's perfect balance. It's, it's, there's nothing more natural because it's built into how we were made. Okay. It's in our essence, we are creatures that were made to be in a worshipful relationship to God, and when He, for whatever reason, vacates that position in a creature's life, it will be filled with something. Okay, so it's not just what's out there, but what's in here. It's right. Okay, so our absolute need to worship something tells us there's an object that should be worshipped. Good. Um, these are all good. Any others? What about our conscience? Do you know anybody who truly doesn't believe in right and wrong and and long for justice? Um, all of these things are, are the things we value love why is love the most important thing in our lives because God is love because God is love why do we value self-sacrifice or, or I think a, a great question is, why would somebody who promotes the survival of the species value self-sacrifice and love when those things just constantly get us into trouble? And yet we do. When we see somebody lay down their life for others, we admire. We think, that is admirable. Not dumb, but admirable. All of these things drive us to... To, to say, of course there's a God. Of course this isn't a cosmic accident. Everything in us and around us is testifying to, to the Creator. It, in, in one sense, it is the most natural thing in the world to believe. In fact, it takes work in many levels not to. We don't start off as atheists. We start off as theists and convince ourselves into disbelief. And so the question is why? Why doesn't everyone believe? What drives us there?
Yeah, we don't want to be accountable. Ultimately, it's because of what we know about God. We know that he is above all. He knows all. That he is good and that he is just. What we know about God puts everything into perspective. And it's humbling. What happens in the Bible, in history, when people come face to face with God and they recognize who he truly is? Fall on their face. They fall on their face. What are some examples? Moses. Okay, Moses. Okay. Yeah, yeah. Exodus 3, the burning bush. Good. Other examples? When Jesus still the storm, the disciples mm. They're more afraid of Jesus than they were the storm. Good. That's a transfiguration, too. Mm-hmm. Those three were down on their face. God overshadowed them. Good. Good. Wonderful examples. Isaiah 6. Excellent. What happens there? Mm-hmm. He, he just starts acknowledging his sin and even calls down curses on his own head. And basically says, Lord, just kill me. Yeah. Good. One of my favorite examples, too, is, is Luke 5. When Peter finally realizes who Jesus is, he, he runs over, he falls down on his face, and says, Lord, depart from me. And he gives a reason. I'm sinful. And if you, if you think about it, it, it doesn't make sense. All Jesus said was, throw your net on the other side of the boat. It sounds like fishing advice. But Peter is able to see through that and realize that's not a, a fishing trick. He's showing us that he's, he's the God of the fish. And if he's the God of the fish, if he made the fish, he made me. And if he made me, he knows everything about me. And he realizes whose presence he's in and it changes his behavior. He falls down on his face. This is what happens when we acknowledge who God really is. It, it's like a spotlight on our sin and our unworthiness. It takes everything that our conscience has ever accused us of and 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 it magnifies that a million times because it shows all of those failures against the perfections of God. And we don't like that. You can't really acknowledge the true God's existence without being humbled, without being convicted, convinced that you deserve judgment, that you need grace. Seeing God for who he is exposes our weakness, our lack of control. It exposes the limits of our knowledge. It it shows our failure to love as we have been loved. Uh, it shows our unwillingness to forgive, to show patience. 
And, and at the root of all of these sins and every other sin is what? What is at the root of all sin? What comes before the fall? Pride. What is pride? There's another one of those weeks where in the Lord's timing it fits perfect with our sermon. Uh, we're going to be looking at this in, in Psalm 94 as well. But what is pride? Okay, good. Thinking we know better. An elevation of our own judgments. Good. How else might you define pride? That's good. Okay, a worship of self. So, what does what does it mean to worship? Submit to yourself only. Okay. Okay. So it's to treat yourself as if you were God. Good. Okay. I like that. Mm-hmm. It's the opposite of humility. Good. Pride is putting yourself, your pleasure, and your goals before God, His pleasure, and His goals. Pride craves to be noticed, to be recognized, uh, to be given credit. And, and what is the single greatest threat to our pride. Humility. Well, that is, I think, I would say, that is the correction to it. But I would say the threat is that God deserves these things and He exists. The greatest threat to our exaltation is the existence of an all-powerful, all-knowing, all-present perfectly righteous God. One who deserves all the things we want for ourselves. So what is humility, Mom? Mom, Hibbs. You said humility is, uh, the, or pride is lacking humility. So what is, what's humility? How do we define that? Yeah, it's tough, isn't it? Maybe seeing ourselves and God accurately. Ah, that's good. There's that. There's that temptation to say, uh, if if pride is loving myself, humility is hating myself, right? If if pride is attack, uh, if pride is serving myself, then pride is uh, humility is attacking myself. But that's not it. It's a quip, but it, there's so much truth in it. You've probably heard it before. Humility isn't thinking less of yourself. It's thinking of yourself less, right? Less often is the idea. And humility is simply, I, I think Rachel hit it, seeing yourself as you really are in light of who God really is. And so humility craves God and his strength and his glory. And that's what's scary 
about believing in God's existence is, is it confronts our pride. So on one hand, it's very natural, but it's humbling. And we all might want to be humble or, or probably more accurately thought of as humble. But it's hard because we want to think more highly of ourselves than we should. So what does it mean to believe in God's existence, to believe in God? That's a good question that we want to wrestle with in in the time that remains this morning. We see that it's natural to believe in God, and yet it's hard to believe in God. Those both can be true. But now we want to ask what it means to believe in God, and we're not left without help. Hebrews 11.6 has a, a wonderful statement. It says this, Without faith it is impossible to please God. For whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. So whoever would draw near to God must first believe in his existence and that he rewards those who draw near. This is, this is what's necessary uh, for faith, those who seek him. So uh, let me, let's kind of pull those two things apart. It starts with believing that God is, but it doesn't stop there. It, it confesses something about God. What does it confess? What does true faith confess about God? Okay, that, that he exists, good. And that, and that he does something. What does he do? Rewards. Good. Rewards those who seek him. Another way to put this is that if God exists, he must be sought after. Notice that, that the writer of Hebrews doesn't say, if anyone would come after God, he must believe that God is and he rewards the righteous. That's what we're all tempted to hear right there, that he rewards those who do well. But it says he rewards those who seek after him. And so the Bible is essentially saying something like this. If If God exists, he must be pursued. He must be sought after. You cannot be indifferent to him. He must be acknowledged as God, and he must be worshipped. We must confess that he is the creator, he is sovereign Lord over all, that he is the gracious savior of those who seek him. And so, uh, let's break that into two parts. If he rewards those who seek him, what does that mean he does for those who don't seek him? What's the implied opposite? Okay. He punishes, holds accountable, does not reward those who do not seek him. In other words, it means that God hates sin and he punishes it. Is that a good thing or a bad thing? That God hates sin and punishes it? It's a good thing because it shows his justice. It's a good thing because it shows his justice. Would any of us want to live in a country where where the leaders were indifferent to wickedness, to crime? That, why not? Why wouldn't we want to live in that kind of society? 
Because we want peace. And there's no peace without justice. What, ha- what happens when, when the leaders just say, you know what, we're not all judgy and stuff. We, we don't want to come down on murderers. What are they really saying? They know better than the Lord. Okay, they are, but but let's connect the dots. Why? Why? Why did? Why does the Lord punish wickedness? Because there's a standard of right and wrong. Because there's a standard of right and wrong, and He cares about the innocent. A, a, a leaders who, who don't punish the wicked are abandoning the victims. They're abandoning the innocent. And actually increasing it because they're encouraging the wicked to go on because there's no fear of punishment. They're making it worse. They're promoting wickedness. Galatians 6, 7 says, Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. Whatever a man sows, that shall he also reap. Exactly. Yeah, we we can we can we can we we can all day long wax eloquent about the lack of justice or things about that. God's not mocked. And again, this is uh, we're we're going to see this in Psalm ninety four that we're going to look at in a, during the worship service. But if God does not punish sin, He is not good. And so it's God's hatred of sin that that leads him to introduce civil governments to punish evildoers. It's his hatred of sin that led him to establish the church to discipline the people within it. It's God's hatred of sin that will lead him to come on the last day and judge the wicked. It's because God hates sin that heaven must be perfect. And, And no sin, no misery... No pain, no death can be allowed in. And it's God's hatred of sin that led him to send his son to die on the cross to make sure that every sin is accounted for, paid for, so that he can reward those who seek him without ignoring justice. It's God's hatred of sin that leads to all of those things, and all of those things are good. And so God's hatred of sin should, should lead us to what? Think the same way. Think the same way, to hate sin as well. Believing in God can't just be an intellectual acceptance of his existence. Believing in God must affect our heart and our life, and it must lead us to hate sin and to surrender ourselves and to submit to him. It must lead you to see him as the standard of all that is good. Belief in God and his existence must change you because it confronts you. It it must lead you to love what is good and hate what is evil. And, And far from a scary thought, that should be an incredible comfort. Because in all of us, there is a craving for what is good and is just and right. None of us 
craves a society of anarchy and, and, and wickedness where crime rubs, runs rampant. None of us do. Gary. We find what is true and good and right in the true God. I have one final thought to share about God's existence uh, in the few minutes that remain. When we say that we believe in God's existence, we mean his self-existence. This is what God declares at the burning bush before Moses. He says, when Moses says, who shall I say sent me? God says, tell them, I am sent you for I am that I am. God is saying, I am and always have been. I have no beginning and I have no end. I am the eternal one. And so the writer of Hebrews, after telling us what it means to believe in God, a couple chapters later he says, Jesus is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Uh, Hebrews 13.8. Really, he's, he's just restating what the scriptures have long said about God. For example, uh, in Malachi 3, verse 6, God says, I am the Lord, I do not change. I am the Lord, and do not change. Now, I don't think that's shocking for any of us. I think we all know that the Bible says this. But, but we want to pause for a moment and ask, why is this important? And I think one of the reasons it's important is because we constantly change. And we are used to change. We expect change. In fact, all around us, things are constantly changing. Because of this, we look for something that is not constantly changing, something we can cling to and hold on to that's stable and immovable. And unchanging and solid, we want an anchor. This is what we looked at last week in Psalm 92. This is, this is depth. In, in, in a world of constant change, and, and, and quite frankly, in a lot of ways, chaos, we're looking for something stable. Why do you think it is we crave something stable and unchanging? Because everything around us is changing. Absolutely. Because we're not stable. Because we can't cling to ourselves for that stability, right? Good. I'd like to throw another reason out. We want something that can't be corrupted. We see so many things in our lives go from good to bad, and it's unnerving. In the last year, I can't tell you how many leaders in the church I've seen fall. Some of them, my friends. And it's unnerving. People you thought you could trust, who were corrupted. And it's... It's... (laughs) 
And we start to wonder, is there anyone who can't be corrupted? Is there anyone who's just good and stays good? We want someone that that can't happen to, who can't be bought, bribed, manipulated, threatened, blackmailed. And because God doesn't change, he's not in need. And if he's not in need, he can't be bought. He can't be bribed. He can't be blackmailed. And he can't be manipulated. If he doesn't get something, nothing happens to him because he doesn't change. There's no weakness. There's no frailty. And that's a comfort. Because it means that if he doesn't change, he can't either one day wake up and decide he doesn't love us or be blackmailed or bribed into turning on us. It's because he never changes that he will never abandon or forsake us. Because that would require change. One theologian put it this way. The greatest proof that God will never stop loving you is that he never started. It's just who he is. He didn't change. So when you feel unlovable, when you, when you sin and, and when you doubt... When you feel distant from God, when you struggle to engage your faith, when you feel alone, when you're discouraged and you're disappointed and you're depressed, when you lose your battle with pride and your your faith is inconsistent, it's then that God's existence, his self-existence, the fact that he does not change will help you understand that his love for you is no less today than it was yesterday when you thought you were doing well. And it won't be any less for you tomorrow if you struggle again because God doesn't change. Because he is the self-existent one. I am that I am. In other words, it's the fact that God doesn't change that gives you courage to face each day. That no matter how topsy-turvy your life and your faith feel, God remains the same. And he says there's reliable and faithful and sure today as he was a thousand years ago. That verse in Malachi that I quoted, Malachi 3.6, that starts with, For I, the Lord, do not change. Listen to how it continues. Therefore, you, O children of Jacob, are not consumed. What's your hope that you won't be consumed? It's the fact that I don't change. You won't be consumed by your enemies and you won't be consumed by me. God says the reason we, won't, uh, we don't need to fear judgment, that we won't be abandoned, is because he doesn't change. His existence is that comfort. So if you want to find comfort and strength to face life's challenges and all that life brings, uh, the challenges you receive from those who deny God, the challenges from your own heart, then you need to understand what it means that God is and he doesn't change. 
And because the more you understand that, the more comforted you will be. The more strength you will find. And day by day, the more consistent your faith might become. That brings us uh, to, to time for Sunday school. So let me pray, and if anybody wants to chat, I'm, I'll be around. Our gracious God, we thank you that you are and that you do not change. In many ways, it seems like such a simple truth, but it is a profound comfort. And while our temptation would be to deny your existence or at least be fuzzy on it for fear of confrontation, the consequence is that we surrender great comfort. We need one who is and doesn't change if we are to find any hope, any stability, and any comfort in this life and that which is to come. And so we surrender, we gladly submit, and we gladly worship and praise you, the true God. Help us to see ourselves as we really are, see you as you really are, and to know the comfort of being your people. In Jesus' name, amen.